0: what we will do is speak of this war. We do this with a gentleman early in his career at that time when Russia again blew up in the early 90s. Mark Kimmett was with the 8th Infantry and then on through other tours of duty with the Army and General Kimmett, Division Artillery Commander, the 1st Armored Division in Germany. He has hands-on experience, as Ben Hodges uh, did the other day for us as well. General Kimmett, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Mark Kimmett, what will the tank warfare look like in Kharkiv? What will the warfare look like in Kyiv?
1: Well, first of all, Tom, it won't be tank warfare. All those advantages that the Russians have with those mechanized vehicles, uh, in to a great extent, is completely neutralized when you go inside the city. These are small streets. Uh, even the large ones can't fit a lot of tanks through them. And it goes down to a completely different kind of warfare. Uh, that we're seeing right now on the roads. If we're seeing a different warfare, do you suggest we'll see it in
0: any moment's notice? And with that, we will see Ukraine do better than the last 24
1: hours? Well, we'll see. Uh, Clearly the Ukrainians have done very, very well up to this point, but uh, it's the first inning in a nine-inning ball game. When you go into the cities, uh, everything that they have been doing up to this point changes. Uh, They certainly have the advantages as the defender in the cities, and a lot of the uh, advantages that the Russians had are just completely neutralized. But it is still tough, brutal combat uh, in a way that we haven't seen yet. Urban combat is, for any military uh, historian, certainly understood as the toughest grittiest, bloodiest kind of warfare there is.
2: We've heard it a million times, General, that it has to favor the attacker, the ratio in combat in urban warfare. Can you run me through the kind of ratio you're thinking about, General? Because we hear things like six to one, what an attacker needs to overwhelm the defender in urban warfare, what kind of ratio is needed?
1: Oh, it could be far more than that. Uh, You took a look at what happened in Mosul, 100,000 troops were necessary to go against ISIS in Mosul, uh, about 6,000 inside there. Uh, And uh, unfortunately, there is a huge toll on the civilian population inside those cities as well. But for an attacker to win in a city fight as our Marines did in Fallujah, uh, it takes extraordinary numbers uh, and it also takes extraordinary
2: valor. And that last point is the important point, General. And can we sit on that for a moment? How unique is this when we see these videos of the individuals coming from the Russian army into Ukraine with seemingly very little appetite to attack, and the Ukrainian people just pushing those tanks back? General, what have you made of that as you've seen those videos through social media, through reporting on news networks around the world?
1: Yeah, I I have seen the ones that are shown on social media where the Russians aren't coming across too well. What we're not seeing is those early insertions done by the Russian paratroopers into some of those airfields. Those are professional paratroopers. They are not conscripts, and they're much better trained. But when you're talking about the conscripts that we're seeing on the road uh, that are uh, basically giving up or dying, uh, I think that the Ukrainians have acquitted themselves spectacularly up to this
3: point.
4: General, do you think that we are underestimating the morale issue, both the boosted morale on the Ukrainian side and the opposite on the Russian side?
1: No, I think we've got it about right. I think that everybody is surprised at how poorly the Russians have done up to this point. Much can be explained, number one, by the fact that these are conscripts that never knew they were going to be thrown into a war. Uh, And number two, the intense, intense leadership shown by President Zelensky, which has toughened uh, the backbone of every one of those uh, civilians and the military and the militias that they're fighting them.
4: General, can you see an end game at this point, given the fact that it seems like Vladimir Putin is not giving in in any way and the Western allies are simply uh, trying to remain with the sanctions and clamping down harder on that
1: front? Yeah, Lisa, that's a good question, because as I said earlier, this is the first inning in a nine inning ball game. And the Russians will just continue to hammer and hammer and hammer away at you in places such as cities. Uh, they don't worry about casualties. They won't, don't worry about collateral damage. They don't worry about infrastructure. So I would expect that uh, his end game will be to mm-hmm. go into those cities and destroy them. It's that simple uh, destroy the buildings, des- destroy the people, destroy the civilians. They don't care. They will continue to flow troops and equipment in there and fire artillery, missiles, and bomb them until they are destroyed. That's how they see the end game. And in many ways, people would say that's the only end game that you can accomplish inside this type of warfare.
0: General, I want you to speak to the public that has not worn the uniform that you have worn. There's a massive primal scream just do something. And I want to talk about the American initiative or even initiatives plural here to fly into Western Ukraine and deposit a massive force that the Ukrainians can use, or to come in through the Black Sea, Alastravitas, and the others. What's the initiative America can do now to assist militarily
1: President Zelensky? Well, I think the main thing is to do what we've been doing, not only as Americans, but as our NATO colleagues and our NATO allies, which is flow as much precision weapons into uh uh, Ukraine as possible, whether it's Stinger missiles to bring down their helicopters, javelins to knock out their uh, tanks in their artillery, drones to uh, conduct drone warfare against uh, selected targets. Right. But we want to contain this inside Ukraine. We can't be putting Americans into Ukraine, otherwise. This will spill over into NATO, and it will be a much, much bigger war.
0: What would you do as a mandate as a general in combat, which you've done? What would you do with a convoy 40 miles long? Is that the job of modern technology
1: and drones? Well, the problem with that, of course, Tom, is that we don't have air superiority. Uh, you remember in the first Gulf War— So do we need a lift, no-fly yeah.
0: zone? So the, 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 the comment of the moment, General, is we need a no-fly
1: zone. Well, the no-fly zone won't help uh, the Ukrainian Air Force get into the air. It's virtually non-existent at this point. Um, And again, the no-fly zone would uh, completely change the dimension of this conflict from a uh, war inside of Ukraine to a war that could spill over in Europe. Uh, What we need to do more than anything else is see if we can get those Ukrainian helicopters in the air because, as we say in the military, 40 miles of uh, vehicles is a target-rich environment. We've seen them destroyed, as we did in the first Gulf War, where we destroyed about 10 miles of vehicles, and it would be pretty easy. But the Russians have air superiority, and we've got to take that air superiority away from them through anti-aircraft devices such as Stingers. But I don't think that will happen in time.
2: General, as things stand to wrap things up, we'd love your assessment of the base case about how this turns out. Eurasia Group was on with us earlier this week. They said we continue to see the most likely outcome of the invasion as a combination of regime change and Russian political control over the entirety of the country. What's your conclusion, your base case at the moment, General?
1: Well, I I think that's probably where it will end up uh, if these peace negotiations if these peace talks on the Belarusian border don't accomplish anything. Uh, Remember, wars don't end when the last person dies. Wars end at the diplomacy table, at the negotiating table. And candidly, the sooner we can negotiate Russia out of Ukraine, uh, the better.
4: MARK uh, GENERAL I'M WONDERING A LOT OF PEOPLE ARE TALKING ABOUT THE FACT THAT RUSSIA IS A NUCLEAR POWER AND NATO CAME OUT THIS MORNING AND SAID that THERE IS NO NEED TO CHANGE THE NUCLEAR WEAPONS ALERT EVEN THOUGH RUSSIA HAS COME OUT AND TAKEN STEPS ON THAT FRONT HOW CONCERNED SHOULD WE BE CAN WE SHRUG THIS OFF
1: WELL I DON'T THINK WE CAN STRUG IT uh, OFF JUST SHRUG IT OFF BUT I WOULD TELL YOU THAT WHILE VLADIMIR PUTIN uh, MAY BE STUPID HE'S NOT SUICIDAL And I think even he recognizes that a nuclear exchange of any kind would be not only the end of his regime, but in many ways could could completely sink the Russian Federation.
2: General, we have to leave it there. We appreciate your time. And, sir, please stay close. We'd love to catch up with you again soon. Lucky to catch up with General Mark Kimmett this morning.
0: Let us go to an informed guest. She is absolutely brilliant in mathematics. Her graduate studies are just bulletproof. She holds court at BNY Mellon Wealth Management, Alicia Levine, on this historic Tuesday. Alicia, how has your view of the markets changed given war?
5: Look, the the geopolitical situation over in Europe with a hot war really just adds another layer to an already – kind of very difficult environment for equities here because you have that specter of the 19 late 1970s, early 1980s of that stagflationary fear of sort of ever ratcheting down growth and ever ratcheting up inflation as you've just spoken about. And what this conflict does is it plays into the inflationary piece because I don't think the oil and gas piece the market's assuming that flows are going to stay the way they are and then Iran will come on and it will be fine. And I I think we have to ask ourselves what if that doesn't happen. You know what if we do see a disruption. And and I think you could see energy higher and let's not forget that Ukraine is the breadbasket of the the former Soviet Union. Twenty five percent of the world's wheat comes from Ukraine. And so therefore commodity price inflation is going to stay higher. So it just really adds to those concerns and difficult and a difficult environment for equities as a result.
2: Alicia, are you surprised by how much we're fading Fed action this year, ECB action potentially later this year and getting comfortable with the idea that the Fed will pull back a bit?
5: So I'm not surprised that the the expectations for the ECB have pulled back because after all, in a sense, the European economy is going to be most directly hit. By this conflict and by the sanctions and by some turmoil in their local banks so so that's not entirely surprising I think it is more surprising for the Fed simply because the inflation here is broad based and becoming sticky and that is something the Fed is going to have to deal with first and foremost and I think the worries about growth are going to be secondary. They have to deal with the inflation piece and ever increasing oil here is not going to help. It's just lasting longer. And what we've seen is that the length of time, the duration that these kind of uh, factors filter into expectations just make it worse. And so even if we think it's transitory for a year, it's already gotten into the psyche of consumers and business leaders.
4: Alicia, what happens if we continue to get this move where rates actually come down because people think that the Fed is not going to move and yet we see stock markets continue to decline because people are starting to price in stagflation? What happens in a regime where people basically are saying the Fed has lost control over inflation?
5: Right. Look, that that's the key question because it's it's not a great environment for equities but we actually think we're here in a range somewhere between that forty one hundred to forty five hundred range which is where we've been bouncing around until there we settle what the main issue is whether can inflation start moving lower in the spring and can, can the Fed do it in a way that doesn't inhibit growth I'll say this the data on the real economy is coming in pretty nicely in February and so that really does support better than you know pretty decent growth I am happily surprised about that but that's the range is is where we are until it gets settled one way or another so there's risks in both directions here I think you're going to start to see a bid Mm -hmm. in some of those large cap tech stocks also simply because that is that is really the safety play earnings cash flow, dependability of a business that's really divorced from from the economic cycle. We're a little bit more cautious on the consumer cyclicals here simply because in a rate hiking environment and an increasing inflation environment, that's those are really the areas to get hit first. What are you doing with energy companies right now? So we still like energy here. I think that much of the move is probably behind us. But given the situation here, I think energy is really still the play. And the really interesting question here, and you've been bringing this up all morning, a CEO from Devon Energy, you know, why isn't the U.S changing its its energy policy in the way that germany has i mean think of german policy changed radically of you know what what it was for the last several decades as a response to this and i think that's really something on a policy basis would not be a bad thing for the administration to address here simply because it turns out that conflicts in places with very small percentages of global gdp really do affect us
2: alicia Wonderful to hear from you, as always. Alicia Levine there of BNY Mellon with some really important questions. Let us move on to our interview of the day on Foreign
0: Exchange with uh, Kamaxia Trevetti of Goldman Sachs. We're thrilled that he could join uh, this morning. Kamaxia, very simple. Where is the true valuation
3: of ruble? Good morning. Thank you for having me. I mean, this is the kind of situation where, uh, you know, fundamental valuations are very hard to do. I mean, you can think about things like Russia's uh, oil and gas exports, its current account surplus, its reserves. None of these things matter uh, at a time when a large quantity of the reserves are sanctioned. Uh, essentially, the sanctions are making Russian assets uninvestable for most, uh, for right. most, you know, Western investors. And uh, they're making, you know, valuations and fundamental valuation calculations pretty much impossible as well.
0: Can you use adjacent ratios to come up with some form of guesstimate of dollar-ruble right now, moving out from, my eyes are failing me here, from a 101-102 right now, can we dare say 115 or 120?
3: Look, it all depends on how things evolve. Uh, you know, if you uh, look back to the period in 2014-15 when you had the annexation of Crimea, hostilities in the Donbas, and a halving in the oil price, uh, you saw you know a huge sell-off in the ruble. You know, nearly you know. Fifty percent or so, and that came along with a drain of central bank reserves of something like hundred billion dollars. Uh, that kind of drain or that kind of decumulation, in order to support the ruble, is just not possible uh, today. So again, I think that you know one can come up with you know maximum undervaluation numbers or things like that. Uh, you know, and, and we are well through those points at, at you know one hundred and fifteen or whatever it is, but. Uh, I, I just think at this point, it's it's not. you need to see some crystallization of the risks. You need to see some sense of the end point here before you can put a firm value that this is kind of as far as it goes and, and, and no further. In the
4: meantime, Kamaksha, what we're seeing is nodes of liquidity amid the sea of illiquidity that is the Russian market for all assets. Where are you seeing the most dramatic ramifications, mm-hmm. the most dramatic moves, simply because it is the only place that people are using to offset some of their other bets that potentially could be an overshoot if things do come to some resolution in the near term?
3: That's that's a very interesting question. I think that is really one that investors should be asking themselves as well, right? I mean, you know, Russian assets, as I said, the sanctions are making them very hard to to, to touch. But there are the whole host of other assets that may be affected by what is going on in, in, in Russia and Ukraine, uh, and where at some point there may be a more interesting opportunity. I think the most uh, significant risk premium is being put in the assets that are closest to the theater of conflict, parts of Central Eastern Europe, Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary, uh, the equities, the, the currencies in those regions. And those are places where if you saw some stabilization, some secession of uh, some ceasefire, I think would probably see some of the biggest risk rec- Recoveries uh, and the fastest moves. Uh, And I think then there are assets that are pretty far away from that. You know, if you think about oil producing countries like Colombia and the Colombian peso or the Middle Eastern oil producers, the credit spreads on those. I think some of those things could be, uh, you know, have already been pretty resilient, but could see more outperformance in a world where the hostility sees, but oil prices are still meaningfully higher.
4: Kamakhshia, you are an economist at the Bank of England. You understand the interplay of oil prices and uh, growth and how the combat for inflation can transpire. Do you think that markets have gotten ahead of themselves in pricing out possible rate hikes from either the Bank of England or the ECB or even the Federal Reserve on the heels of this conflict?
3: I should say I was an economist at the Bank of England many, many years ago, uh, now obviously a strategist at Goldman Sachs. But um, look, I think the markets are trying to price a very uncertain situation. And I think what is really happening is that markets are you know, implicitly making the assumption that the tightening in financial conditions that is needed to bring inflation down, some of that tightening is already being delivered by the the move higher in commodity prices and oil prices. I think that is sort of what the market is pricing, and I think that's why you're seeing the, the interest rates, the yields move down. I think that, you know, my uh, our view is that you will still need to see considerable tightening, especially in places where, as I said, the growth impact from this conflict may be relatively limited, but the negative shock from oil prices to inflation might actually be quite meaningful. So I, it's, it's understandable why markets are doing what they're doing, but I think it may be a bit too fast, and I think you're probably still going to see major central banks, at least in, in the near future, continue to be on a tightening trajectory.
2: Kamak Shih, great to catch up with you to get your perspective, some really important thoughts on what's going to happen with this currency. Kamak Trivedi of Goldman Sachs. Thank you, sir.
0: Right now, what we're going to do, Is Link a Russia surrounded by, what is it, 14 nations to an America surrounded by two with great commonalities with Canada and Mexico? One company that has done that over the decades in North America is Target. Let's get your attention. Target has beat Walmart by over 600 basis points per year in the last 10 years in the name of Global Wall Street. That is success. Their chief financial officer, Michael Fidelki, joins us this morning. Mike, I'm going to cut to the chase. The president will speak tonight on 104 $105 Brent Crude. You spoke today with $24 per hour on your wage. How are you going to do this at $24 an hour, a blended $48,000 a
6: year for line employees? Well, I'll tell you, the investments that we make in our team from my seat are the best investments that we make. And that's been a path of investment over years now. We laid a path to get to a $15 starting wage back in 2017, accomplished that a couple of years ago, We've invested in additional benefits. We've invested in tuition-free education assistance. And we see those investments paying off. You can see it in the results that team delivered in our fourth quarter with growth of 9%.
0: Just because of time, I don't mean to cut you off, but I think this is so important, Michael, because you led on this and you, and I'm gonna say Amazon, Jesse, and the rest are in the crosshairs on this. Are we having an arms race right now for line employees?
6: It's definitely a tight labor market. But our story might look different than what you'd hear elsewhere, and that we track our ability to attract and retain those metrics really closely. Those metrics are stronger for us right now than they were pre-pandemic. So we see the result of that investment over time really paying off with a team that wants to come to work at Target. And... That best team in retail delivery, delivering.
4: Michael, this is one side of the equation that you have a bird's eye view on, the employment aspect. The other side is consumers' willingness to keep spending at the same pace, even as they see their price of gasoline rise to the highest level since 2014, even as wheat futures rise to the highest since 2008. How do you game this out when you talk about pricing, when you talk about passing it on to the consumers and your ability to do so? Is time running out to keep passing it all on direct? Yeah,
6: we certainly see the inflationary cost pressure in the environment, but we tackle that really through the lens of our guest. We're fortunate; we have a lot of levers to pull uh, within our business to make sure that we're protecting value for our guest. And price is the lever we pull last, not first. And that investment in value is working. If you look at our fourth quarter results, that nine percent growth it came almost entirely from traffic. That means guests picking Target more often, whether with their footsteps or clicks to our website. And yeah. so those investments in protecting value are paying off. Michael,
4: I'm asking because you sort of are at this cross-section of what we talk about every day. We're talking about what's going on with Russia invading Ukraine, the possible disruption of supply chains, the possible ramifications on growth of oil prices. And I'm wondering how you factor these things in. Have you been scouring through your supply chains and looking for possible disruptions either from this or other prospective co- uh, conflicts? I mean, how does this factor in to your day-to-day decisions? making?
6: Uh, As you might expect, it's a situation we monitor really closely. And I'll, I'll start by just saying our hearts go out to everyone impacted by the situation in Ukraine. I know it weighs heavily on my mind, our target team and our guests. We're fortunate we've got the benefit of a really sophisticated supply chain that's navigated a lot of challenges over the last two years incredibly well. I feel really good about our inventory position today, up 30% to last year. That's a testament to us working through some of those supply chain challenges, so we should be well positioned to start the year.
4: Have you found that you've actually gotten a lot of market share from smaller businesses simply because you have that ability to really rejigger supply chains and streamline uh, certain uh, costs so that you can
6: pass it along? When we look at our market share gains over the last couple of years, we see them coming from a variety of places. And some of that goes to, you know, the market share story by category. As you know, we've got strength across so many categories from a really strong apparel business to a strong food and beverage business. And each of those categories grew double digits in the last year. And so the market share story is a little different by category, but it's it's a wide set of sources.
2: Michael, big move in a pre-market today. Up by almost 11%. Monster move, in fact, from New York. Thank you, Michael. Michael Fidelke there of Target. The Target move, quite sizable in early trading. year to down about 13%. So we're raising much of that in the early part of today's session. This is the Bloomberg
0: Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.